And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi for Me Radio is live from the bunker. All right, I've had my Cocoa Puffs and my bacon. Let's go. Welcome, everyone. We are live from the bunker. My name is Jason Hunt. I am the editor here at Sci-Fi for Me. 33 years in media, which means I know how the sausage is made. And you don't know... You don't want... You don't want the sausage. The sausage will make you look like you're seeing five lights. We are broadcasting live. Looks like going off to uh, YouTube, Odyssey, and Facebook. Everything's working. The gremlins have uh, taken a knee, so hopefully they'll stay on the sidelines. The chat is live. Uh, hello, Mazerus. Notification came in 30 seconds ago. Well, at least it came, I guess. The comments are open. If you are not live with us, you can always leave your thoughts there. And uh, we've got an email address, live from the bunker at sci fi for mecom If you are listening to this as a podcast, there's a number of players that are available. And we welcome everybody who's listening in Russia and Mexico and Austria and Greece. Very happy to have you all here. And I tell you, just let me let me tell you, I could drop everything that I'm doing to talk about the Mean Girls musical, but I'm not gonna because we got priorities here. Our priorities are in place because today we have an audience with the Duchess. Uh, she joins us now, Alma Alexander, who is uh, actually a Duchess, and uh, that's a that's a rather interesting story. But she is the author of a number of different uh, series of books: The Ware Chronicles, World Weavers, uh, and the new book that she's got out. It's called The Second Star. I'm reading it right now, which is not fantasy. Now you 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 have uh, adopted the name the Duchess of Fantasy, and most of the most of the work that you've done has been in fantasy. So first of all, welcome to the program. Glad you're here. Thank you for having me. So this pivot into science fiction, you're, is this a is this a new thought for you? Because you've been writing for a very long time, but you're very you're well established in the fantasy side of things. What prompted the science fiction? work i i literally and this is going to come to a, a nasty shock to most people who think writers are some really weird special kind of people i literally dreamed it i woke up uh, one one morning and i i just got this one sentence left on the shore of dream this like little bit of flotsam i don't know where it came from what it connected with but there was one sentence left there when i woke up and the sentence was the soul is like a starfish and I kind of sat back and went, okay, how so? <laughs> um, because the starfish are known for the simple fact that if you chop off one leg, it'll grow another or it'll potentially, you know, it won't, but it might grow a whole different starfish from the chopped leg that was chopped off. It just carried on being unraveled from there. 
my long-suffering husband who was very well aware of these weird dreams that I occasionally came up with just sat back looked at me and said okay go um, and we just we just embroidered this and embroidered this and embroidered this and one of the things that a writer brain is really good at is just throwing out the what-if scenarios and once you get an idea happening you just suddenly get to a point and you take a sharp left and what if something and this book turned into something quite unexpected really um i didn't really even know that it was going to be strictly speaking science fiction as such but once i got the idea and started working on it it just went straight off into the stars and stayed there <laughs> so it was it was a, i committed accidental science fiction if you like <laughs> well now i'm i'm reading yeah i'm reading it now and it's an interesting premise you have a crew of a starship who goes out in space, there's six of them, they're lost for 200 years. The, they, the, the next mission that goes out recovers this ship and brings them back. They're still alive. They've only aged just a little bit because of time dilation. And now they're suffering from multiple personalities, uh, multiple personality disorder. That's a, that's a very tricky thing when you start getting into mental health kind of questions how much research did you have to do to be able to speak to this and say all right i actually sound like i know what i'm talking about i don't want i you know i don't want the medical community to come back to me and say well you got this wrong you got this wrong you got this wrong did you ever worry about how you were portraying this Look, first of all, um, whatever you do in any book, in any context, there's going to be somebody who knows more than you is going to come back with you with you did this wrong. Um, <laughs> this is something that you absolutely cannot avoid. Right. Uh, you can write a book about your own life and somebody is going to say you've got this wrong because they've got the similar experience and they didn't pan out quite the way you did. So, you know, it's one of those things that you... You start worrying about when you start writing about getting everything perfect and then you realize that if you spent enough time to get everything perfect, you would never write the book in the first place because you would spend so much time researching it that it would never get written at all. Right. Uh, so having said that, um, I didn't go in there, uh, you know, just with hobnailed boots either. Um, but I did enough research to ground it and the rest of it is... I'm sorry, medical community, but it's poetic license. This is science fiction. <laughs> um, so um, if, if I, and also my, my particular situation is very, uh, well, it's unique in its own way. So if I, if, I did, if I got anything egregiously wrong, I can blame my context for it. Sure. Um, this, is, um, th this is one of the joys of doing things that, that are not grounded completely in our real world because nobody can come up and absolutely tell you that you erred in certain ways you can always say well in context of my story which is not the context that you're talking about this is correct yes well and uh we have a, a comment here Mazur says accidental science fiction i like that some of the best creative processes are the most unexpected ones and sci-fi snob says by the way i haven't read your book but here's a list of all the things you did wrong <laughs> so, <laughs> it, that's that's something i think when you know, you you've got a track record. You're you're established. You have a, a number of of books that you've written. You've been writing since you were five. So this is not any kind of a new thing for you. But in the last few years, especially, uh, we've seen a lot of 
Uh, you know, the, the cancel culture, the blowback, the you, you shouldn't be writing this the type of thing. Have, have any of your ideas gotten pushback from your publishers or your editors and anybody kind of looks a little bit sideways and thinks, I don't know that this is the right thing to be, to be writing right now. Or do you just, just steamroll through and, and this is the story you're going to write? Um, just to give you a little bit of context here, okay. I'm currently reading, uh, a friend of mine mentioned these books, so I picked them up and I'm currently reading uh, Laura Joe, I don't know how to pronounce it, J-O-H, Joe, jo, Roland. Um, she's writing a mystery set in um, the um, Tokugawa Edo uh, era of Samurai Japan, uh, which is what drew me to is this historical mystery kind of thing was was really something that tickled my fancy i, I was reading it more i was reading it as much for the history and the the context as i was i'm not really a mystery person i'm, I'm what kind of went there i i admit i went there for medieval japan but okay uh but the thing is um she is she's asian but she is as I gather from her bio on the back of the book uh, of Korean Chinese ancestry, and she's writing about Japan. Um, now, you can argue the fact that she's Asian and she's writing Asian books, so therefore it's all okay. But then you can cut it down. You can cut this down into a zillion little pieces. She's not allowed to write about Japan because she's Korean. Right. Where does this kind of stop? Um, we are all human beings, and we are all part of a, a greater human knot of stories. And so long as you do your research as you respect this thing as you don't use it for window dressing or or stage set just the sort of two-dimensional cardboard cutout so that you you know set something because you like this you're going to cut out a little little uh, background green screen thing and just set it against that that is clearly wrong to do because you are basically not you're not respecting the context you're just using it because you think it's pretty it's like putting on a kimono for a, for a Halloween costume. It's it's wrong. It, it's you're disrespecting the culture. But having said that, if you go into it knowing what you're doing, if you go into it researching the culture, if you know into it researching the the topic, if you go into it with that kind of respect, uh, what else am I supposed? Let me let me just put round you into context. You're supposed to do your own thing. It's supposed to write only about what you know. Well, what am I? I was born in a country that no longer exists. I will. I left it to live in Africa when I was ten years old. I lived in three countries in Africa before I was uh, fourteen. Um, I was educated in the UK, um, which gave me a good grounding in the British culture. I went. I lived in New Zealand. I came to America when I got married. Where do I belong? What am I supposed to write about? See, and that's the, that's the crux of the question when when you hear about this kind of thing, when people sit there and say, well, you can only write this kind of story. Well, why? Who, 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 is, who is the ultimate arbiter of, of what's allowed to be written and who's allowed to write it? I mean, we, that's, a, that's a very slippery slope when you start getting into that kind of gatekeeping. And it's good to hear you say, you know, it, as long, and, and I agree with you, as long as you respect the material, as long as you respect and do the research, and you come from a, a knowledgeable space, uh, you know, I, I personally don't see anything wrong with anybody writing anything about anything, as long as they I mean, can, know, do the I homework. If I can ask an obvious question, I mean, what happens if I want to write a Jewish character if I'm not Jewish? 
Right. I mean, there are Jewish people in the world. And if I want to write a book that exists in this world, I might occasionally trip against the Jewish person who is in the context of that book. Am I not allowed to write about that person because I'm not Jewish? I'm positive that I, I'm going to get a zillion little things wrong about it simply because I'm not Jewish. But I have enough Jewish friends to have a decent grounding in what it means and what the context is. And if I don't know, I will ask. No. Um, and if I, you know, if I ask, that means that I, I'm aware of the fact that I do not understand this particular aspect of it. And if it's important, I will make sure that I get it right. Now, do you have conversations with other writers? Or do you do do you do writers workshops where you have conversations like this and talk to other people and say, you know, this this is how it should be, not not necessarily imposing any kind of a worldview, but having those discussions with other writers about this kind of thing. Is that something that has come up in the past or do you have do you have opportunities to discuss this with other writers at any time writers talk about this unsurprisingly all the time um, given the fact that we are all in the same uh, general little boiling pot we're all little frogs in a pot that is quietly coming to a boil Um, we don't actually realize that we are in trouble until we get into real trouble Um, we talk to each other we do Um, there are people who are writing uh, things that that they have spent, they have literally spent a decade researching. I mean, this is the danger in research. You, you can basically get so wrapped up in research that, you know, you just never get out of it again. Right. Um, I wrote one book for which I think I read about 37 books so that I could write that one book, you know, because they, they needed to be read. I needed that background. I needed that grounding. So I just went ahead and did what needed to be done. Um, also, when you're doing things like introducing characters whose names people might recognize, um, in the World River series, for instance, one of my characters is Nikola Tesla. So um, I did a lot of um, picking up on, on him, but he's, he's my boy. He's from my, my neck of the woods, so I know a lot about him <laughs> right. in a way. Um, but I kind of picked up the rest when I was reading a couple of biographies and what have you. And I actually went, I was in New York at one point, and I went to the New Yorker Hotel, which is where he lived and died. Um, and I demanded to stay in his room, so they did. They let me. <laughs> um, it wasn't, strictly speaking, uh, research directly uh, applicable to what I was writing. And no, I didn't meet his ghost or anything like that. But I stayed in the room that he that he stayed in. That actually made a really bizarre kind of difference. It's like I never really met him, but I was there. And of course, the room was not the same. This was decades afterwards. They redecorated four times since then. Sure. But the room number was there and his his spirit hung around it somehow. And it was just a great deal of Fired fun. up the muse, as it were. Yeah. yeah. Well, I kind of felt like I kind of sort of met him on an astral plane. Yeah. So that that uh, that leads me to this next question, because I listened to an interview with you talking about your process and a lot of writers, you know, besides the research, a lot of writers will do, you know, outlines and synopses and some different little things there. And you were talking about how you're the ultimate pantser. Uh, you know, it's just, it's not even necessarily stream of consciousness. It's all, you, you describe this as if the story is already there and it's just, it's coming to you and you're writing it down. It's almost, almost like the story comes from out here somewhere and comes through your head into the page. What is that like? 
when I was writing um, the, the thing, the, the novel that became The Secrets of Jin Shei, um, what it started out as, I wrote down a list of 10 characters, short like character, sentence length character descriptions. They didn't even have names. I wrote 10 character descriptions of a page and I handed it to my husband and I said, and he said, what is this? And I said, it's my next book. And he said, I hate you. Um, well, he said, what it's about? I said, I have no idea. And these characters kind of sat there for a while. And then I happened to read an article that somebody sent me about the last living woman who had organically learned the language of Nushu, which is the written language in um, China that only women learned. Um, they, they learned it at their mother's knee. Um, and it was simply not something that men could read. The, the, these secret messages went round on fans and on little scrolls and what have you between women who would communicate in secret ways that the, the, their menfolk never even realized was, was going on, really. Huh. But the last person who, was, who, was lear who learned this organically in the traditional way was now something like 97, 98 or something, and she was dying. And after that, the language was going to probably survive, but it was going to be more of a, a you know, let's put it in a glass case and examine it kind of thing. Sure. And uh, my, my 10 characters kind of sat up and went, that would be us. <laughs> That story, that book, got written in less than three months. It's 200,000 words long. Mm. I was taking dictation. I was basically sitting there every morning at my computer, putting my, my hands on my keyboard and starting typing. And where it all came from, I have no idea. They just told me the story. Now, is that the usual way it works for you? Is, is the story the story exists and it and it comes to you that way? Or... Are some of your stories a little bit more stream of consciousness? You kind of plan it a little bit better. Is it is it a mix? It's a mix. Well, look, when you ask me what my process is, my my reply to that would be another question: which book? <laughs> um, right. It doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really translate from uh, from opus to opus. It, basically, every book has its own little route, and it follows that. Um, sometimes. I, well, the one thing I don't do is I don't do outlines. Um, I do not do a detailed outline simply because my back brain thinks that when I do an outline, that detail, I've already written the story and it loses interest completely. Right. Um, so I just basically find out what happens when I'm typing. Um, every now and again, my character is going to get into hot water and I'm going to go, you did what? You're going to expect <laughs> me to get you out of that? No, you're on your own. How, how often do you have a story that just doesn't work and, and you can't crack it you can't break it apart you can't get into the to the core of it and figure out all right what do i need to do for this to work so i can finish it are you ever how often do you run into that problem never <laughs> do you, no, seriously i just basically start a story and it just it, it just needs to be that's the story that needs to be said, and uh, that that's the story that needs to be told, and and essentially that's the story that gets told. It may not be the story that I thought it was going to be when I started. That's a whole different uh, ball of uh, twine. But um, like for example, the the where you mentioned the Weir Chronicles. Um, the Weir Chronicles are currently they currently exist as three books, which are not a trilogy. They what are, they are what I call a triptych. They are three books uh, from the viewpoint of three different characters, but 
they're basically they're looking at the same story. They're just every time you, you you cross into a different book, you see a different perspective of what is going on, which kind of illuminates the whole thing differently. Um, but the way that thing started um, was that somebody came up with a, a call out for an anthology, and they they it was a we're we're creature anthology, and they said specifically. We do not want just your, you know, your average werewolves. We're, we're tired of werewolves. We want weird something. We want weird, weird butterflies. We're Pomeranians. We're something, you know, something else. Uh, do something else. So I started writing a short story for this anthology. And the short story became a novel. And the novel became three novels. <laughs> and it's probably happening that, that I left it at a point where there's more to say in that world. So there's probably going to be more in that world. So the novel became a world. I mean, the story became a world. So, um, about your question, it's it's it, it was a block as a short story because I couldn't get it to to work as a short story. It was just there was just too much in it right. to fit in a short story. Now, if if you are doing multiple stories in a universe, you're looking at a shared universe. You've got the world building that's involved. How do you keep track of all of that? Uh, you know, some some authors will do the spreadsheets, and the, some people you know have all of their their notes in a notebook. And this is what this planet is, and this is what this creature does, and this is what this means, and these spells, and this this sword, and these weapons, and whatnot. How do you keep track of your world building from series to series to series? You're going to hate me. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I, I write notes when I do research things. I've got little notebooks filled with crabby little note, handwriting, which half the time I can't even read afterwards. But I just, I just kind of read the, the salient word here and there and go, oh, okay, I remember what that was all about. But those are the research notes. Those are not the, uh, the those are, they're not the series Bible or the story Bible or anything like that. That's all in here. That's all in my head. Um, when, you, when you're writing a story that's uh, three books or four books long, or even a book that is 200 and 250,000 words long, and I do those a lot, um, it just all lives inside my head. Um, I don't know what to tell you. It's a weird place to live. I mean, I've got, I've got little compartments in the back of my brain for all the books, and I go into like little attics and I rummage around for the things that I need. Are you concerned at all with that being the case? Are you are you concerned at all that you might lose track of any of that? Um, occasionally you do, but you kind of realize that if you work this way, you kind of realize that the track has been lost because something else happens that, that will remind you that you're no longer on... On the straight and narrow, you're out in the brambles. So you just kind of have to uh, make your way back to where the, the actual story is happening. It happens. Um, and every now and again, you just lose it completely. Like I like I lost it. Um, a friend of mine who was reading an early manuscript of the Jinshe book um, just kind of stopped reading and looked at this book and looked at me and said, can I ask you something? And she pointed out a sentence which I had written. And the sentence, and I quote, was the deaf servant, servant summoned by the noise rushed into the room Okay, I'll fix that. <laughs> Occasionally, you just lose track of the fact that your servant is deaf, and there was no kind of noise that would attract her whatsoever because she is deaf. Yeah. But every now and again, you kind of forget about that. 
Would that, I would imagine that that would probably make it difficult to collaborate with people too, because you know, it, on, on the off chance that you ever open up any of these series to other authors, are, is there a way to, to put in the essential notes of the, of the Where Chronicles universe for other people to play in the sandbox? Or is this all yours and we're, we're not sharing? I'm not really concerned with things like fan fiction. Um, I'm, I'm kind of flattered if people want to write fan fiction, but in terms of inviting other authors to write actual official books in the universe, that ain't going to happen. I don't do that kind of collaborative work. I might do a collaborative thing that, that was a collaboration from the outset and that we, that we all or we both or however many of us knew what was happening uh, at, you know, from the get-go. That's, that's a whole different um, approach but to as for opening up to other people books that i've already written that's not going to happen well what about adaptations for film and tv have you been approached for any of that i mean has has netflix come knocking on your door yet and say hey we want to make a series no but if you know anybody there please let them know (laughs) um the um i did have one or two nibbles at uh, the jin shea book um and uh, it, it's kind of a limbo at the moment as these things go. Um, but all I can say is that I keep on telling people if they ever made anything visual out of any of my stuff, I may or may not go and see it. Um, it's, I know it's going to be a different animal. Uh, I know it's going to have to be a different animal because they just adapt things to screen in certain ways. But I don't want to know what they're going to do eviscerate from that book in order to fit it on the screen Um, i'm not sure i could handle it (laughs) no well and you know you you see you know adaptations of you know tolkien or or tom clancy for example tom clancy writes has has written these very dense books and a lot of it like you say a lot of it gets excised from from the final draft of the screenplay you don't have uh, you don't have as much there. You know, the layers are gone. You you don't have as much of the onion as you would when you're reading the book. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. I can understand having concerns about anything like that. Um, have you ever gotten into a story and started writing and the thought pops into your head, oh, this would make a good TV show. This would make a good movie. Have you thought about writing in other mediums besides prose fiction and poetry? I looked at uh, screenplays and they are weirdly alien to me. Um, I don't know if my mind works in that kind of context. I do see things visually when I write. In a way, it's like watching that movie in my head and I'm just writing it down, but I am conveying it in words, those pictures, as opposed to I'm not trying to convey it in instructions about how to get that on a visual medium, which is, a, which is different. Right. It's just different in my head. Um, I looked at various... Uh, you know, you can get hold of various screenplays on the on the net um, from various things that I that I enjoyed watching, and I I was interested to see what the bones were. I was interested to see how it all looked on the on the page, and you know, I, all kudos to them. They did a wonderful job. But I don't know if I could write one 
in the context of being able to convey to somebody who's supposed to be shooting this thing what I wanted them to do. <laughs> well, and that goes back to the whole collaboration thing where now you're dealing with somebody else's interpretation of what you've had in your head for so long and what you've put on the page and the potential, and, and we've seen this a number of times, the whole the ubiquitous creative differences that the productions will have with the authors uh, and suddenly the authors or the or the representatives of the authors in terms of the of the Tolkien estate, for example, are no longer involved with the project. And it, that that to me kind of raises a red flag. This, but it shows. <laughs> well, and, and there are a lot of people that are concerned about this Lord of the Rings prequel because of that very thing, because, you know, the estate's not there anymore and the Tolkien scholar they had uh, attached to it is gone and. And I guess that that's always the danger of adaptations whenever whenever the person who what created the universe is no longer involved in the project. So, all right. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a very quick break. When we get back, we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of the second star. We're going to talk more about that and other things. We'll probably get into how Alma Alexander is actually a duchess. That's not just a nickname so stick around stand by we will be right back with more live from the bunker this is sci-fi for me radio be sure to connect with us on social media and subscribe to our channels so you don't miss our next broadcast punch the demon face just punch it <laughs> yeah i know it's got teeth punch it on the head like they're always like, ah, ah, no, punch it. Like, there's a little girl whose life is in danger. Do something other than just yell. Foreign Bodies, Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on Sci-Fi For Me TV. Back live from the bunker, Jason Hunt here along with my guest, Alma Alexander. She is the author of the book, The Second Star, among other things. It was published last July, 2020, uh, and uh, I am relatively late getting to it. So so uh, the, the nickname, if you go to uh, various different places on the net uh, and read the biography of Alma Alexander, it says the Duchess of Fantasy. So I want to I get into that for just a moment because this is actually a real thing with you. You're, you're an actual Duchess by lineage, right? Well, technically, yeah. Um, the... Um this was discovered uh, in uh, one of the old books of annals and transcribed and I translated it. So I've actually got the version of it. I actually got a coat of arms. This is real. Um, I have uh, an ancestor who um, fought in a major medieval battle at one point, um, acquitted himself admirably. And the king at the time uh, rewarded him with a dukedom. He came home with um, a lasting limp, which which kind of gave me my surname because his descendants then became known as the son of the gimp. Um, so that's that's who that's what I grew up as. Uh, but 
the dukedom endured for uh, a little while during the high medieval period and then history happened and everything got wiped away anyway but the lineage remains and i am at the end of that lineage um, and um, not that I can claim the dukedom because that's no longer there, but I am the Duchess. Um, and I just thought that, you know, given what I do for a living, given what I write, um, it, seemed, it seemed like a good, good title to claim. <laughs> well, now, are you going to have to modify that now that you've gotten into writing science fiction in addition to fantasy? Uh, no, I'm just the Duchess of Fantasy, like I said, it was accidental science fiction. Uh, actually, that's my second, it's my first real science fiction book. My first science fiction book was something called Abducticon, um, which basically posits the premise of what would happen if a bunch of time-traveling robots turned up and kidnapped a convention, hotel and all, and took it for a trip around the moon. <laughs> that sounds like fun, actually. It's uh, it's my love letter to fandom and cons and what have you. And it's you know reading that thing you have, you need to have a bingo card because you're gonna get, you're gonna be ticking off references to a lot of fandoms in there. <laughs> uh, that was published. Uh, actually, it looks like it was published on my birthday, March third, twenty fifteen. Happy uh, birthday! Uh, <laughs> so, uh, speaking of conventions, how often do you get out? And I know with the with the pandemic and lockdowns, the opportunity hasn't been there as much. But before that, were you uh, a regular on the convention circuit? Do you go a lot? Um, I I used to go. Uh, there was one year that I went to, I think maybe ten or eleven conventions. Um, I I used to just I used to go a lot more than I do now. Um, I kind of graded it back quite a bit, and of course, this last year has been a disaster. And, yeah. Um, but um, I, I used to go to a lot of world cons. Um, I went to Japan. I went to Montreal. I went. I, would, I traveled um, for world cons. Uh, Were you and at- I love conventions. I, I really, I mean, I'm, I'm a cast iron introvert and I need time to recharge every time I go out and do that hurly burly. But I love being there and I, I love the, the opportunity of being in the hurly burly for a little while. Right. Um, it just recharges me. Now, were you at Worldcon in Kansas City, uh, 2016? Uh, not that one. Not no. that one. Okay. All right. Because I was thinking, I, I didn't see your name anywhere. We, we were out there actually broadcasting from that one. So, uh, got to meet several uh w- several authors that are on our list but... little world. Uh, it, it's it's kind of weird when the Worldcon was in la that year um i was at a different convention somewhere halfway across the country like literally the two weeks before or a week before the, the big the world con and i went into la and it was in this hotel that had the foyer the size of an airport hangar it was just like one of those huge places that yeah. just echoed with emptiness and across this empty floor, I saw this one person who had just left at the other convention. Um, it's like, okay, hello again. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you say it's it's almost incestuous. There there are some criticisms about uh, that part of the of the publishing community in science fiction. I mean, you know, you had the whole sad puppies blow up and everything a few years ago. Are any of those criticisms where this is this this community here, especially uh, around Worldcon, are they too insular? Because when we were at Kansas City, we saw a lot of people that were older. You know, the demographics are shifting, and we didn't see that many people in their twenties and thirties and forties. They they were they were older. Is is there? 
a danger, perhaps, maybe, that the literary community with regard to science fiction and fantasy is aging out? I don't know how old those people were, but in here we're all in our 20s anyway. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's really, I mean, honestly, I go out looking at things like tortoiseshell combs for my hair because they used to match. Um, I was born a redhead. It just doesn't seem to compute that they don't anymore. Right. Um, but that that being said, you're right in one sense that there's a there's a lot of people there's a core of people who have been devoted to this for a long time their whole lives, and they are um, they consider themselves to be the backbone of of this entire world and in one sense they are. Um, the world cons in particular are prone to this because they are the big international gatherings and the people who can go there who can get there who can travel there tend to be the older people who are you know well healed enough to to be able to afford this kind of thing because honestly these things are not cheap right. um you know for a smaller convention if you happen to be on on the programming they'll sometimes comp the convention fees but you still have to pay for your own accommodations and your food and what have you the world cons don't even do that you go to a world con you pay your way um, and it's not a, a it's not a cheap um, excursion. It's, it's quite often you have to fly somewhere that is hours away from you, which means getting there from wherever you live next to the the big international hub that you did you live closest to. That involves a travel. You get onto a plane. You go to to a place where you may and may not be ending up. So you have to hop another plane and somewhere else. And you know it it all adds up. And I think that a lot of the people who are you know, still working to establish their place in the world, uh, simply don't have the wherewithal to, to, you know, hop on a plane and go to a world con, which is why you don't see them to a place, you know, a place like that. Right. And yet you look at the comic cons, for example, you know, the comic book conventions, a lot of the media conventions, where you have the Hollywood actors and you have the cosplayers and you have, you know, the comic book artists and writers and, and authors will show up there. And you have a broader demographic spectrum there. You've got people that are in their teens and 20s and 30s, and they've got the discretionary income they've been saving up. They're going to spend $50 on an autograph or $100 on a photo or, you know, find that rare copy of X-Men number one from, from way back in the day. Is, is there a need, do you think for the literary side of science fiction to do more to reach out to that crowd that's maybe not quite so intensely steeped in the literary side of things there there it's not necessarily the pop culture mentality but it's a broader scope in terms of what they're interested in i mean they 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 may not have read Heinlein or Asimov, but they they read George R. R. Martin and they read, you know, Marvel Comics and DC, and they go see the movies. Do we? Does there need to be a broader effort to appeal to that crowd for something like WorldCon? I've only been to one comic con in my life, um, as opposed to conventional conventions. <laughs> I've only been to one comic con as such in my life. And quite honestly, uh, I didn't quite fit in there. Um, I am part of that literary tradition. Right. Um, comic con 
from what I've said, okay, I've only been to one, so I'm I'm saying this with a caveat of please don't hate me. I, maybe I don't understand the the the, the system, but. To me, um, there's a, a large part of a Comic Con is that it's a huge part of it is is uh, is what is what is known as the Huxter's Hall in the normal convention, which is only a part of a normal convention. But in Comic Con, basically, you go onto the floor and you you look for things to buy. Right, the you vendors. Look for things to buy in the sense of your comics, your tchotchkes, your 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 autographs, whatever it is. It's a it's a money spending thing, and. My fandom isn't a money spending thing as such. Um, I I'm gonna go and buy a book, right? You know, and and yeah, maybe it appeals to a different demographic. It's quite possibly true, but I'm not, and I never have been part of the celebrity culture. I'll go and fawn over an author uh, more than I'll go and, and fawn over an actor, and I'm really not willing to pay hundred fifty dollars for someone's signature as such. I I just don't think that that's a <laughs> But would you consider a- actually having a booth or having a table at a Comic Con to maybe maybe introduce people who might not be aware or who may- maybe they haven't read your books and maybe they don't know what what stories you've told and here you are and say hey you know I'm a Duchess read my book or else you know I mean you can you can actually come in you know on my authority as as royalty you know you you can you can do that kind of thing. Sure, but it's it's not something that um, it, it. I'm a writer. I'm not a salesperson. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting that you say that because I had a conversation with Anne Crispin uh, before she died when when her Pirates of the Caribbean book came out. She she did the the first Jack Sparrow origin novel, and we were talking about how authors nowadays. And I think it's probably more prevalent now even than, than when we spoke. Authors are expected more now to do a lot of the marketing and promotion of their stuff. Back in the day, you know, your publisher would foot the bill for all of the advertising and the marketing and, the, and, and everything else. But now the authors themselves are responsible for a lot of that. You know, social media posts and interviews and public appearances and signings and stuff. You got to set all that stuff up yourself now. It's a full-time job in itself, yeah. Yeah. How much of a challenge is that for you if you're if you're a writer, you're an author and that's what you do, uh is is it is it tough to split the time to do the both of them? Extremely. Um especially since it's a different mindset entirely and when you're writing a story, you're writing something that's inside your head, that's inside your mind, that you're, you're conveying, that you're putting together, you're living in here, you're living inside your head. When you're not doing that, when you're trying to get someone else to read it, then you have to go out there and say, hey, look, this is a good book. And, you know, a lot of us suffer from this huge imposter syndrome thing. Um, and quite aside from anything else, it's, it's, it's considered to be a bad thing to blow your own horn, which is... Fair enough, uh, but when no one else is out there blowing your own, they are doing that for for a select group of people whose names you will recognize because they are being talked about a lot. But there's a huge iceberg of authors underneath that uh, that thing that you see, whose books just never really get the traction because not enough people are reading them as well as George R. R. Martin or. Brandon Sanderson or whoever the, the, the current big name for a front runner is. Um, 
Who would be it's, on who would be on your list of authors that get missed like that? I mean, it, it, besides besides you, I mean, there you know, you've got this whole bibliography of of titles that people have probably never read. Who else is out there that you you would sit there and say this is somebody that everybody needs to know about? Whether they're a new author or they're established authors, is they, you talk about that group that everybody recognizes, you know, the George R. R. Martin and Kevin J. Anderson and, and Brian Sanderson and, and, and that group. Well, um, not, he's got a little bit of a higher profile now because of Lovecraft Country, but Matt Ruff went under the radar for a, a little while, um, especially in the beginning. And, um, I mean, when I first read a book of his, which was the first novel that he wrote, The Fool on the Hill. Uh, he was, at that point, uh, according to the back of the, the book blurb, he was a 26-year-old snot-faced kid who just graduated summa cum laude from Columbia, or, or, or no, not Columbia, um, Cornell. Um, and he was basically, you know, he was a know-it-all who just went on the stage with this, damn it, perfect novel. <laughs> And you hated him. You hated his guts because you were never going to write like this. For 20 years practice, you're never going to write like this. And he did it with ease. He did it like that. He just did it like breathing. And he just went from strength to strength after that. Um, and one of the books that uh, was that underlay the second star as an inspiration, if you like, was um, Set This House in Order by Matt Ruff, which also concerns uh, split personality issues. Mm -hmm. And was done, again, perfectly. Um, he just has the touch. He has the absolute touch. He, his books are the ones I go back. I will go and buy a book with Matt Ruff on the cover without knowing what it's about because I know what I'm getting. I know I'm getting quality. Now and There's very few writers I will say that about. Right. So the second star, it's been out for a year. What kind of response have you gotten? What kind of uh, uh, feedback, reviews? I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to finishing it so I can write my review. So far, it's proven very interesting. Well, uh, it's been called a psychological science fiction thriller by some people. I can see that, yeah. <laughs> and um, the latest piece of news on it um, that, that sort of came out into the daylight only just recently was that it was a finalist in the Washington State Book Awards. Oh, congratulations. And um, essentially, uh, given the fact that it's an unashamed genre novel, um, the fact that it's finaled in a highfalutin literary award was, uh, <laughs> was, was, was a nod. Um, so I'm quite happy about that. Um, before that, it also finaled for the Imagine Awards. Um, so it's been getting out and about and people who have read it seem to have okay I'm going to do a little bit of a spoiler because it's someplace some people will probably get it but um, some a person who was supposed to be doing an arc review of this uh, wrote back to me and said but it's a Christmas story and I said <laughs> no it's a hand grenade thrown into a Christmas story <laughs> Uh, well, I'm looking forward to getting to that mo that point in the book. Um, so with that said, this is your second science fiction novel. Are you going to continue with science fiction and other stories? Or you, you've got that out of your system, now we go back to fantasy. I, um, I had another dream. <laughs> <laughs> 
seriously, I had another dream and it's also going to turn out to be a science fiction story. Um, I've written the prologue for this um, and it's going to be a doozy. <laughs> but <laughs> um, I've actually uh, put most of stuff in the back. I haven't really written much in the past six months. My my life has been a bit off. The, you know, I lost my husband six months ago and uh, it's it's a... It's been a bit of a fallow period. I've just been trying to keep up with myself as best as I could. I haven't really written anything new. But there's a bunch of stuff in the back burner which has been simmering there quite happily. And um, at some point when I feel ready to do it, I can just go back and pick a, pick a pot off the boiler and whichever one I choose, it's going to be either this new science fiction thing or it's going to be a new um, historical fantasy thing, which has been kind of 20,000 words in and sitting there for a while now. So I might pick that up again. Now You, you don't uh, want to know what kind of research I did for that one. Uh, well, given given how much research you've done for the others, I imagine it's been quite extensive. Uh, it, does that research, and you you mentioned in you know in our our condolences on 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 the passing of your husband, but do, do those life experiences factor into what kind of stories you write? Do you draw from personal experience at all for any of of your story elements, or is this all from outside research? I think it's inevitable that you draw little bits of character from both other people. There's a character in in Embers of Heaven who is my mother, um, who will and she will never. She has read the book and she doesn't recognize herself um, because she will never accept this is the kind of thing that she does. But she does, <laughs> and um, this is the the kind of uh, little piece of her personality that got transplanted into this this character in there so things like that happen um you kind of assimilate the people we are the borg you will be assimilated do not resistance is futile um, right. a friend of mine once once said to, to another person in my hearing be careful what you say in front of her she'll put it in a book <laughs> now do you practice tuckerization at all do you do you put people that you know in the books or you just pick and choose personality aspects um, I actually do sometimes. Um, this thing, uh, this is the latest, the, the newest book that I've done. Uh, this this collection. Um, is that that's the fractured fairy tales? Yeah, um, that was a Kickstarter book, and one of the Kickstarter rewards levels was tuckerization. So, a couple of people picked that up, and there is a story in that in that book that's literally got the tuckerization in the title. It's called Finley's Joy. Um, the person who wanted the tuckerization had a daughter called Finley and wanted Finley, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> wanted one of the characters' names to be Finley. So that that just happened. Uh, but the story itself wasn't d dependent on that. I just happened to write the story and I just slotted in the name when it felt right. And you mentioned uh, Kickstarter. Crowdfunding seems to be... The new wild, wild west, almost, uh, especially over in the comics industry. We've seen a, a lot of indie comics uh, flourishing over the last three or four years, especially. And, you know, between Kickstarter and Indiegogo and the various different projects and campaigns that people have, 
that seems to be this new model that's emerging on on cre- the creative side of things. And now you've got a number of comics creators going over to Substack, for example. A lot of people using Patreon and those those different models that don't involve a traditional publisher, for example. If you're if you've got for those who wish to know, I have a Patreon, so you can join it right now. Okay, we will put the link in the notes. Uh, is that? Do you see that as maybe not necessarily the the wave of the future, but in terms of viability, do you see that as almost maybe an inevitable outgrowth of the way the market continues to change and shift? We talked about, you know, authors are responsible for their own marketing now. Are, are you are you seeing a time that, that you're going to be responsible for all of it? You know, writing and editing and printing and publishing and distributing and all of that? Is no, that... Uh, no, seriously, <laughs> if you're going to write a book, go and get an outside editor. I mean, this is a golden rule. You cannot edit your own book. You cannot do it. You're too close to it. You're going to look at something and you know what you meant to say and that's what you're going to see. And something that's actually on the page, you, you're not even going to note it because you just don't see it. Right. Um, because you just you don't notice it. You don't recognize it. It's just something that isn't there because something that's in your head is there. And you, you, you can't edit your own book. It's just not doable. And a lot of the people who publish their own stuff and just do the editing by themselves and they throw out this thing into the world. And it's a bad book for that reason, because they simply didn't see the problems. And every book, every first draft is crappy. That's what they're for. Um, you know, people who publish their first drafts are doing themselves and the industry a big disservice because um, the, that, that's the reason why a lot of the, uh, the self-published, the, sort of the indie published, self-published books got themselves a bad name because people would pick it up and start looking at this thing and it's full of typos and it's full of inconsistencies and it's absolutely badly written. And they're going to say, well, why should we trust anything like this ever again? In the meantime, there are people who did everything right, you know, dotted their I's, crossed their T's, did everything right, who are never going to get a chance because somebody else thought their book was ready for the prime time without having run it through a professional hand first. I can see where that would be an issue. I, 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 have, um, I have done one self-published, I guess you could say a novella, and after all of the different passes and the editing and the proofreading and everything else, and it gets out there, my dad finds one word still misspelled. <laughs> like that is inevitable. Yeah. That is inevitable. I mean, I think that I think typos breed inside published books. You I think you're right. Swear that you absolutely don't have anything in a particular story, and then you read it when it's published and printed, and it's all too late, and you go, "Oh my God, how could I possibly have put this word in here and, and not noticed it?" It's, it happens. Um, it's like no the, book, the deaf servant hearing the noise. Right? Yes. Yeah. No book is ever going to be born perfect, <laughs> and I think part of the um, part of the there's a lot of people who will take joy in, in writing. I've had this happen. Somebody writing to me and saying, "There's a typo on page 304," and I'm like, "Yeah, well, thank you, <laughs> but like I'm not going to reprint the entire book because there's a typo on page 304." Have you ever gotten to the end of a story? And it's done, and you finished writing it. All of it's come through your head, and it's on the page. And you look at it, and you think, "Oh, well, this is not very good. I, I'm not. I can't publish this one because it just doesn't work." 
even though it's all come through and it, and it's all done and and makes a certain amount of sense have you ever just looked at something and said it's it's not there yet yeah um every book <laughs> especially when you're at a certain stage after having read it for the 45th time and um going through it and line edited it and taking stuff out and put stuff back in and you always 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 reach a point of why am i doing this because this is a really horrible thing and no one is ever going to want to read this is that the imposter syndrome kicking in yeah that's where the imposter syndrome double-headed monster comes in. Um, it's it's just a question of, I think, over-familiarity at that point. You just you just read it so many times that you know it so well and you forget that someone else who might be picking it up off the shelf has never seen it before. Right. I can... and, and once again, um, a book, once it's done, once it's written, once it's edited, once it's put through the ringer, once it's published, once it's out there, it is no longer yours. It is theirs. It is the readers. And it is what they put. I mean, I've had emails from readers asking me about things that I supposedly put into those books that I never even realized were in there because the readers will bring their own little, you know, insights and their own baggage and their own ideas in there and they're going to find they're going to shine their own light into the shadows that i didn't even know were there and all of a sudden all of these little things will pop up for them that i wasn't even aware that i put in there i had a a, a a piece that i wrote for my high school band once and as we are performing it, as we're rehearsing it and and listening to it there were there was a piece in the oboe that kind of floated over everything and i had Oh, did I did I do that? That was rather nice. It was it was, it was a little surprise, and it, and it's one of those things where people respond to various different things in your story that maybe you don't necessarily expect them to. You you think, okay, well, this is what's going to get them, and it's that thing over there that does it instead. Uh, yes. I, I guess they're they're happy little surprises for when when people respond to the things that you write. You go, oh. I didn't know that was going to be a thing. Does that happen a lot? You know, you've done the right thing. When I I moved to um, the Pacific Northwest from Florida, which is where I lived when I first arrived in the States to get married. And I kind of ran away from there as fast as I could. Long story. Um, But when when we came out here, of course, we, we left a bunch of friends over in Florida, which is as time zones go three hours ahead. Right. Right. Um, at one point, um, the phone rings at what is midnight here, uh, which is really kind of late and emergencies only kind of thing. And you pick up the phone with a kind of a, a trepidation going, what what happened? And there's a person on the other end from Florida where it is three o'clock in the morning, screaming down the phone. How could you possibly have killed this person? Yeah, my work here is done. Yes. All right. Well, on that note, let us uh, let us tell people the book is The Second Star. It's not the most recent work, but it's the one that I'm reading. So we're going to do a review on it where you can find information on Alma Alexander. You've got almaalexander.org and .com, uh, almaalexanderauthor.com. Do you have a preference on which one people should visit more? 
dot org is the main one. This one was a backup page. Okay. And then the Patreon, Alma Alexander, and she's also on Twitter. Uh, you can follow her over there, and of course, we'll put links to all of these things in uh, in the chat or in the in the uh, show description. Alma Alexander, Duchess of Fantasy, thanks very much for being here today. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Yeah, we I was we we had a good time. I and like I've said before, these shows are always better when there's somebody else talking besides me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just a reminder here for everyone, we've just dropped a brand new H2O podcast last night talking about those stories that are sometimes considered unfilmable. And we will also have uh, some details. We're doing some updates and some reorganizing on Salacious Crumbs. We'll have an announcement on that uh, shortly. So uh, be tuned in and connect with us over on all of our social media. Tomorrow, I think Perch is going to be here. We're going to talk about comics. And uh, in the meantime, we do invite you to subscribe to the channel. Have your notifications turned on and uh, sign up for our newsletter. And we'll be back to do this all again tomorrow. Remember, there are four lights. Thanks for being here. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.